Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for the chance to come together in worship and to hear your word. Almighty God, speak to us in a new way this day through this text. In your son's name we pray. Amen. More than 25 years ago, my sister moved from California to Manhattan. She was just a little bit out of college, and for years she had dreamt of moving to New York to pursue her love of theater. She worked a little bit and saved up some money to make the trek, and then she moved to the Big Apple, chasing her dreams. Of course, though, the rent had to be paid. So she quickly found a job working as a waitress in a restaurant in Greenwich Village. For our family, this idea of living in New York and seeking out her dream of theater and working at a, as a waitress, it all seemed right out of the silver screen. My father was the most intrigued and excited by it, though, especially her work in the restaurant. He would often talk about this dream of wearing a disguise, and specifically, he'd talk about those fake glasses that you put on, you know, with the fake nose and the mustache, and going and visiting Kristen's restaurant, as though he could sneak in, uh, sit at one of her tables, and order a meal and see her working. He brought this up a lot, and he and I never did do it, and for obvious reasons, right? We'd, we'd never get away with it actually changing our identity, especially our outward identity? It's a difficult thing to do, especially with those people who know us. But we can and we do protect parts of our identity and the identity of others, the internal parts of our identity. When I was a lawyer and I'd be out with my clients, perhaps at a restaurant or even right outside our law office, if we ran into someone they knew, more often than not, I'd be introduced as a friend or some other vague way of describing me. There was like this attempt to avoid saying that I was their lawyer. There would be this slight pause as they figure out what to say. And it's kind of funny because now as a pastor, I'm out with folks from church sometimes and we run into someone that they know and more often than not, there's that familiar slight pause, and I'm usually introduced again as maybe a friend or some other vague description. There's something about the identity of a pastor, I guess sort of like a lawyer, where there's a basket of assumptions that come along with the identity and what that identity says about the person who's with them. Now, I like to think that I do something to break down the assumptions or stereotypes of either a pastor or a lawyer, but who knows, perhaps I just reinforce them. But I also wonder if there's a little more to it. We've talked about this before, but I've offered that there is this concept of compartmentalization that is a part of partic uh, partitioning our lives that we all naturally do. We sell, uh, separate our church life from everything else. What happens at work or out with our friends, our so-called non-church friends, is partitioned from how we live and interact with the people we know from church. Now, in some respects, this is a good thing, or at least it has some good reasons behind it. When we ent enter into community, 
particularly in a church, a church community. We're choosing to be a part of a community of people who are, who are united in some way, committed to trying to follow Jesus. We can help one another in that quest. We can teach one another, learn from one another, pray through things with one another. Our interactions within the Christian community and we, we looked at this last Sunday too, they're intended to always be striving to draw us closer to God in the ways we love each other. And this is contagious. You know, just this week, I was talking to a neighbor outside and he was out with his wife and his daughter. And he said to me, you know, the one time we stopped by when you were having an event a couple of years ago, and it was our fall kickoff Sunday, he said, everyone was so kind to us. He said, we haven't experienced that sort of kindness at any of the other churches we've gone to. And they said, we'd like to come back. This, my friends, is a love. It's, it's hospitality and it's the warm embrace that so many of you have shared about and that I've seen you exhibit to one another and to strangers who've walked through our doors. In fact, even with our literal doors and campus closed, you all have been creating a new form of community in our online presence. You've welcomed others into our online services like you're doing right now, friends and relatives, and even folks who have just found us wandering by through Providence. About a year ago, I was talking with someone from the church about our church, and they laughed this little nervous laugh, and they said, you know, I love our church because I can just be myself here. In many other aspects of my life, they said, I, I have to be something else. I have to work at it. I have to try. But here, I can be me. When I was growing up, I could definitely relate to this. All through my early years and into middle school and high school, I felt like people at church knew the real me because I felt safe and I felt loved. In fact, when I think about the goals for a church or a successful church community, these two characteristics are most often what I hope for, that people would feel safe and would feel loved. Safe, loved, accepted that they would feel as though they are enough in God's eyes and that they are invited to be partners with God in God's work in the world. On some level, these goals feel so lofty, but the foundation really is in those first two, that all would feel loved and accepted, and that the love and acceptance that folks feel in this place would translate into a better understanding of God because our God is one who has love for us that is far beyond our imagination and a God who accepts us, all of who we are, because our God created us, designed us, smiles upon us, holds us, comforts us. So you see, when we build community in this church, in this place, when we raise our children and youth in an environment where they learn what it means to be loved by others and accepted for who they are, we begin more clearly to understand who God might just be. As you all know, there are many fires burning in California right now. And this past week, you may have seen photos on your social media accounts or in the news showing the strange colors of red and brown and orange in the skies. 
When I was there a couple of weeks ago, there were a few days where the sun was barely visible. I was looking at the smoke-filled sky and I was staring right at the sun. My friend yelled at me and said, don't look at the sun. And I'll be honest, I was a little confused because it wasn't that bright. It was a little orange dot in the sky and I kind of liked it. And I just ignored her and I didn't push the issue. Well, I thought I was getting to enjoy seeing the sun through the mysterious colors of the smoke, but hopefully I didn't do much damage to my eyes as I did later read that the ultraviolet light, and you probably all know this and you're shaking your head right now, but the ultraviolet light is the real danger and that still was coming through. And here I thought I can finally see the sun. Nope. The sun is such a distant mystery. And I think that sometimes God feels this way to us as well. We know what the sun does. In fact, we can feel the sun. We can conceptualize what the sun might even look like. But we don't look at it. We don't look at the sun. Instead, we look at the evidence of the sun. We learn about the sun when we look at a flower, for instance. When we look at when we, look at, uh, when we look at the things around us, without the sun, we don't have flowers. And flowers somehow reflect the wonder of the sun's function. But there are other ways too, right? We feel the warmth. Our family had a cat that loved basking in the sun. And she would move around the house throughout the day as the sun would move. That cat understood the sun. We can all understand, just like the cat, we can understand the sun because of the sun's attributes, characteristics of the sun, the warmth, the light, the life-giving and sometimes life-taking properties of the sun. Attributes are the ways we can best understand things, and our mysterious God is much the same. Now, remember those characteristics of the church that I just described, of Christian community. Those characteristics of love and welcome are some of the most wonderful attributes of God. When we exhibit love and concern and charity, when we create environments of safety and welcome, when we accept people as God created them to be, we are living out God's divine attributes, and our God is closer than we can imagine to our understanding. I remember someone once said to me that they weren't so sure about God, but they knew they felt love from other people, and that's what kept drawing them back to church. This makes sense. Throughout scripture, we read of this very thing. In the first letter of John, chapter 4, at verse 12, he writes, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and God's love is perfected in us. Like those flowers that reflect the light of the sun. Divine attributes, characteristics of God. When we seek out these characteristics of God, especially in Christian community, we discover the ways that we can live in a way that brings us ever closer to, under, to that understanding of God, but also that brings us ever closer to living a life of oneness with God and of being God's agents for good in the world. In our Christian community, yes, but also in the world. 
The world we sometimes find ourselves partitioned from, protected from. The world, though, that needs these attributes of love and welcome and acceptance more today than ever. But sometimes these attributes of God are a challenge. They're a challenge for me. Sometimes the attributes of God are a little less convenient than love. And this morning's text hits right on perhaps the most challenging one. Throughout our scriptures and our services of worship every week, we read and hear about God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness for the ways in which we distance ourselves from God and the ways that humanity fails in the world. Each week, we are reassured, like Lottie did this morning, that God loves us, God forgives us, and God restores us. And each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that Christ died for our forgiveness. When we say the words of the Lord's Prayer, we seek forgiveness and we accept forgiveness. And so in our text from Matthew's gospel, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking in hyperbole in this parable talking about forgiveness. Now, Peter asks him the question, how many times must we forgive one another? I have to wonder what led to this question. It's right on the heels of last week's lesson about resolving conflict. And here they are living in community with one another. And he asks this question, how many times must we forgive one another? I wonder if he does a little sideways glance at someone who he might need to forgive. And he throws out a number. He says seven times. Now, the number is interesting because throughout Matthew's gospel, the number seven reoccurs. There are a lot of theories as to why he chooses seven and why it's included in this story. But what is clear is that he chooses a number, a number that seems to put an attempt or it seems like an attempt to put a limit on the breadth of forgiveness. Jesus responds by essentially saying that the number of times is beyond comprehension. Jesus is removing any predetermined limitation on our forgiveness as though he wants to make it very clear. We don't have a way out. Through the telling of this dramatic parable, Jesus drives his point home. Basically, he points to God's forgiveness of each one of us, God's embrace of us, God's grace for us as being an attribute of God we should desire to share. If we are created in God's image, and we should always be working to return to living in that divine image, living as ones who reflect God and God's attributes to the world. And through our pursuit of living out God's grace and forgiveness, we are able to better understand both God and our own identity. Forgiveness is not easy. Of course, it isn't easy. And you don't need me to tell you that. In a parallel version of this morning's text in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is talking again about forgiveness. And he says, and if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. And what comes next is so reassuring. The apostles said to the Lord in response, increase our faith. 
the disciples, these ones following Jesus everywhere he went and living with one another in community together, doing the ministry of Jesus with Jesus. They knew then that this challenge of forgiving others is hard to do. They knew it. But they also turned to God for help. Help us. Increase our faith. Walk alongside us in this call to be forgiving. Friends, I know that forgiveness is such a complicated subject. There are unrepentant wrongdoers who cause harm in the world and who may have caused harm to you in your life. Forgiveness of serious wrongs without true repentance is not what God is calling us to do in this text. God is calling us to learn what it means to have the same radical grace that God extends to us. Let's go back to what I said about identity. Remember the glasses, the ones my father wanted to wear with the fake nose and mustache, the attempt to be something different in the world? As I shared, I I think sometimes the church community can be a place where people do feel comfortable taking off their masks. And it's such a good thing to have a place we call home. But the church also needs to be preparing us for the world, for going out into the world and perhaps even being that same self in the world. We can practice these divine attributes here. We can get a taste for them. We can fall in love with them. We can work at being loving and at being forgiving and at being faithful. But then we bring them out into the world that is so much, that is so much in need of the reflection of God. Working toward taking down the partition and living out the gospel in our workplace in our classrooms, and wherever we may go. Living our faith in the world means doing the hard work of loving others, even when they don't love us. And it means learning to bring the radical grace of God, the forgiving grace of God, into our interactions with others. May we be continually learning what it means to be forgiven by God, and what it means to bring God's grace into the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.